If you would open up your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 41, we're going to start there and read through the end of uh, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's on page 254 of the, um, there should be a Bible uh, below the seat in front of you. You can open up there. So that's 2 Samuel, starting at chapter 19, verse 41. And when you get there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able to. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Ibishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, do us now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Carathites, and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway, into the field, and threw a garment over him. 
when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the women said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. And Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to be here. I was here on uh, January 1st, and I was invited because, of course, nobody would be here on the first of the year. And I've never been invited back anywhere, Joe, so this is uh, really quite an honor for me. But uh, my name is Reed Jolly. I am grateful to be here. My wife, Lisa, would like to be here, but not enough, evidently. But uh, <laughs> now she's uh, got a responsibility at another church in town this morning. So uh, it, again, I just want to say thank you, and thank you for letting me uh, just jump right into where you've been. Uh, you, I know you've been in First and Second Samuel since the time that Ronald Reagan was president. So uh, it's just great to jump in. But I, I want to ask you a question before we look at the text. And, and the question, don't say it out loud, but how old are you? I know some are thinking, I'm really old. <laughs> uh, how old are you? And, and then think, how do you think the rest of your life will turn out. I can ask you, you're young enough. How old are you? Ten? Ten? Did I get it right? Ten? Nine? Nine? Like that? I have, a, I have a grandson and a granddaughter every age, so you're one of them. And, uh, and they're not as cute as you are. But what, how, do you, you know, how do you think your life is going to turn out if you're 70 or 80 or t nine? Or the old guy can't hear us ten? I mean, there's an American story that we're, that we're supposed to be in, right? You, you, you go to school or you go to homeschool. 
and you get education, and then you go to college, and sometime in your 50s, you pay off your college debt, <laughs> and then you start saving money, and you, you hope you have enough, and, and you don't quite have enough, so you move somewhere in Texas or Arizona, and you play pickleball until you can't see the ball anymore, and, and then you die. <laughs> No, no, you, you spend time with your kids, with your grandkids, then you start to lose your hearing, your mobility, maybe you lose your mind, and, and then you die. Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> All right, let, let's, let's go to another question. How about with regard to your Christian discipleship? What do you forecast between now and the end of your life? What kind of climate change do you expect? Global warming, where, you, where your heart grows more inclined to love and to enjoy Jesus? Is that, is that what you expect? Or do you think you'll go back to the 70s? You know, remember in, in the 70s we were expecting an ice age? And if you stay on the, the trajectory, will, will you move into a spiritual ice age between now and the end? People do. Uh, Lisa and I have been married 42 years. Uh, we have been blessed with a lot of friends. And <clears throat> we were just talking with some other friends last night how, how some of our friends have just kind of wandered from the warmth of the Christian life. And worse, others have denied Christ outright. They've just left the whole thing. How about another question? How about your zeal and your zest for life itself? I mean, just down the street, there's a really good coffee shop. It's called Lighthouse. Anybody been there? Great coffee. If you don't like that coffee, then you should start drinking tea because it's, it's really good coffee. But I like to go there in the mornings, and I see these 16-year-olds, and they pretend like they're studying, but they're actually enjoying one another, and they have shiny hair, and, and their Mac is open, and, and they're complaining about their history teacher, but there's a lot of words, and a lot of joy, and, and a lot of anticipation about life. And if you were to talk with one of them, they'd probably tell you, well, I'm going to go to college, and someday I'll get married, and, and my life's going to be great. But then you run into a 56-year-old divorcee. He's 50 pounds overweight. He's concerned about the economy in ways that 21-year-olds are not. One of the consequences of having a lot of birthdays is, is you can move into regret, into sadness, into lament, into disappointment. The shine from your hair is gone. And and it tends to turn gray. I don't know anybody like that. Or maybe it's gone altogether. The kids haven't turned out as you planned. Your hips hurt. Your knees hurt. Your ankles hurt. Your core is bulging. Your friends are dying. My friends, when we get to 2 Samuel 20, King David is like this. His kingdom... And he himself is withering. He's tired. He's chastened. He's hanging on desperately. There are dark clouds on the horizon of his life and on his, and on his kingdom. And the story, if nothing else, it makes us long for youth, 
for eternal youth. <clears throat> David is king. He's Israel's best king. You know, you only got three, Saul, David, and Solomon. Then you have a civil war. And of the three of them, he is by far and above the best king, but so much is missing. And in these chapters, his kingdom is unraveling. So here's what I want us to ask this morning. How do we keep the shine in our hair as we grow older? How do we move toward delight and not toward despair? How do we get to the end and say with the Apostle Paul, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Lord willing, this is what we're going to find today as we study this passage, and I want to just take a moment and pray and ask that you, Lord Jesus, and you, Lord Father, and you, Lord Holy Spirit, would be our teacher this morning. that you would be alive, that your word would come alive in us. We pray that in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. And God's people said, amen. Okay, three characters in the passage. The worthless man, the wise woman, and the withering king. Now, recall where we've been in this book. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Joab, his general, has murdered Uriah, Uriah, her husband. This starts to sound a little bit like 16th century uh, British intrigue in in royalty. Amnon, Absalom's half-brother, rapes Absalom's full sister, Tamar. Absalom murders Amnon. David pardons Absalom. Absalom declares himself king. David has to make war on his own son. Absalom chases David out of Jerusalem. Absalom humiliates his father by taking David's ten concubines, one at a time, into a tent that has been set up on the palace roof. And all Jerusalem sees it. David has mustered some troops to go after Absalom. David's chief general, Joab, murders his son. And we think the war is over, but the chaos goes on. There's division between the northern tribes, that's often represented as the Benjaminites, and the southern tribe of Judah. There's a tension there. All is not well as David goes back to Jerusalem. And this is what Daniel taught us about last week. Now, there's a literary hint that I want us to look at. If your Bible's open, uh, just look at verse 40 of chapter 19. Look at what it says. All the people of Judah, or excuse me, the king crossed over to Gilgal. Gilgal is west of the Jordan River, east of Jericho. So they've just crossed over. The king crossed over to Gilgal, all the people of Judah, watch this, and half the people of Israel escorted the king on his way. Now, we know that every single person of the tribe of Judah is not present, right? And Israel's a couple hundred miles long. We know that every single person of of the tribes of Israel is not present. But the writer is telling us there's a division in the kingdom. David, the king, has Judah, but he's only got half of Israel. Gilgal is significant because when 
after 40 years in the wilderness, when the nation crossed the Jericho River, right as they crossed, they set up a monument of 12 stones. Those, that, that monument was a testimony to the faithfulness of God. He dried up the river. They walked across without even getting wet. But the stones were piled on top of one another. That's a symbol of the unity of the nation. But now, only half of Israel is following the king. The divided house of Israel. Now, we see this divided house in verses 41 to 43 in chapter 19. Basically, there's an argument between the house of Israel and the house of uh, Benjamin. They're arguing over who gets the king. It's kind of funny from our perspective. Uh, <clears throat> the northerners up in the tribe of Benjamin, they say, hey, you stole our king and you didn't give us the honor of bringing him back to Jerusalem. The southerners say, too bad. He is our close relative, and he is. He's from the tribe of Judah. The, northern, the northerners then argue in verse 43, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. You've got one tribe, we've got 10. Everybody wants David back as king, but not everybody wants a united kingdom. <clears throat> Look at verse 43. The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of Israel. And that's the backdrop for where we're going in chapter 20. Well, let's look at these characters. There's the worthless man, Sheba. Verses 1 and 2, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And watch this. He blew a trumpet. Remember that later in the passage. He blew a trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in this son of Jesse. Remember, David was the eighth son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. In other words, let's go home. Sheba is not calling for an insurrection. He's calling for a succession. He's saying, let's split the kingdom. They can stay down there. We'll go up there. Up, up here, we'll have our own country. Well, look at verse 2. So all the men of Israel, now it's all, not just half. All the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. There's a division going on here. Well, David arrives in Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles from uh, where they are to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Israel, you know it's all uphill, right? It's just a long hill from Jericho uh, all the way up to Jerusalem, so they're pretty tired. And the first thing David uh, does is he attends to his concubines. Look at verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines, whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them and did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. That, that verse is just inserted there, and it's kind of cryptic. We're not sure exactly why it's there and what it means. On the one hand, it could symbolize repentance on David's part, and he's protecting them uh, from any further sexual abuse. 
and they live in freedom in this house. On the other hand, some interpreters say, no, they're being treated as prisoners. We, we can't know for sure. At least this one can't know for sure. But let me make just a couple of comments about polygamy and concubinage in, in the Bible. Because as we read through the Bible, sometimes these verses jump out at us and they startle us. But, but I'll just give you three statements. Number one, the triune God of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 ordains lifelong monogamous heterosexual marriage. That is God's intent. That is part of God's creation. That is part of God's gift. That is, what, that, that is the way God designed the universe. You don't have to get past Genesis chapter 1 to understand that, and you'll see that through the whole scriptures. Number two, when we meet polygamy in the Old Testament, it's, it's essentially always a problem. The first polygamist is a guy named Lamech, Genesis chapter 4, and he turns out to be a murderer. Abram, or Abram at the time, Abraham, he has a concubine, Hagar, who produces Ishmael, and Ishmael produces no end of trouble for Israel throughout the centuries, some would argue, to this day. Jacob had two wives and two concubines, uh, through whom he produced 12 sons, and it's about the most dysfunctional family in history. These are the kind of people that God used. Uh, number three, in the ancient Near East, taking multiple wives and concubines was seen to be evidence of a man's power. This is just what people did in the various kingdoms, that every king had a harem. And it's, unfortunately, the... the uh, patriarchs and the kings of Israel's history bought right into that cultural norm. So Abram has a, con a concubine and another wife. Jacob has two concubines. Gideon has a concubine. Manasseh has a concubine. Saul has a concubine. David has ten. Not to be outdone, David's son has 300 <laughs> plus 700 wives. Can you imagine how many times he was told to take out the trash? <laughs> His son, Rehoboam, cut the number down a little bit. He had 18 wives and 60 concubines. But, but concubines and children, the, the children that were born to them, they were of an even lesser status than these multiple wives. And the wives were not treated all that well. So these things must have broken the heart of God. They're not a part of God's original plan. But watch this. The principle of biblical interpretation, just because the Bible records something doesn't mean that it approves of it. And sadly, like the church of our day, Israel reflected the wider culture of her time. You say, what's culture? I know our vice president tried to define it. I'm going to try now, too. Culture, this is my sophisticated definition, culture is what seeps into your pores. Culture is that set of unexamined assumptions that we carry around in us that make sense to us, over which another generation would marvel how we could be so stupid. 
So, so we marvel in, in 2023, how, how could it have been that people thought slavery was okay? That Presbyterians and Baptists argued for the, the validity and the legitimacy of slavery. We think, how could that be? Well, they were affected by their culture. Today, we marvel over people that will accept and defend abortion or in light of what we studied Wednesday night, transgenderism. By the way, if you missed Wednesday night, it was so good. And you want to be here this Wednesday night, and you want to catch up. Tremendous, Daniel. Thank you. But, but if, I am absolutely convinced. Mean, the American Medical Association approves of transgender surgery on 13-year-old girls. I am convinced within my lifetime, we're going to look back at that and shake our heads and say, what in the world were we thinking? Well, that's a really easy list for us because we all probably agree on all of that. But, but there, there are probably cultural assumptions in your life and in my life that we just don't see. And our great-great-grandchildren will say, how could my great-great-granddad have believed that? But we're blinded because we're in the culture. Okay, back to chapter 20. It, this is where it gets really fun. David tells Amasa, his, fi- his new five-star general, he's, been, he's replaced Joab, as we learned last week. He says, hey, get some soldiers together, and in three days we go. We're going after Sheba. We're going after this worthless man. We're not told why, but, but Amasa dilly-dallies, and he doesn't get ready. So David says to uh, Abishai, his nephew, he says, well, you do it. Let's get going. We got to get going. Verse 6, he says, uh, pursue Sheba, the worthless man. And listen to this, it's very urgent. He says, he will be more trouble to us than Absalom. So David somehow is more threatened by Sheba than he was by Absalom. Well, verse 7, they get going. They get to Gideon, which is about six, mi- Gibeon, about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, everybody starts to show up. You've got Amasa. Joab shows up, and Abishai is there, and, and this, uh, if you, th- you think there aren't any R-rated chapters in the Bible, this is certainly one of them. Uh, Amasa is standing there, and uh, Joab, who's the cousin of Amasa, comes up, and he takes his beard uh, with his right hand, and he's going to give him kind of a Middle Eastern kiss, and that's the way they do it. I, I don't think they pull too hard, but he's going to give him a kiss, and as he, as he kind of bends down, he just, you know, shoves up the, the sword in his, in his guts spill out. And, and that, that's what it says. It says, Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. He died. Wow. Now, Joab is evil incarnate. He's a murderer. He's killed Abner, the commander of Saul's army. He's murdered Uriah. He's murdered Absalom. And now he has murdered Amasa. So now Joab and Abishai, their brothers, sons of David's sister, they go in hot pursuit of Sheba, the worthless man. In the meantime, just in case you haven't had enough blood and guts, uh, Amasa is, is laying there and his guts are spilling out. And he's like a freeway accident. All the people are stopping to look at him. So they drag him off in the bushes and cover him up. And that's just in case the reader wanted to know, I guess. And we learn in verse 14 that Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel, which is to say 
that Sheba is spreading this division, this succession plan everywhere. He's going through all the tribes saying, we're out of here. But he lands in a town called Abel. We don't know where Abel is or was. Uh, The word means brook. Joab and his soldiers learn that Sheba is there. They begin to build a siege ramp to knock down the wall. Their goal is total war. They're going to kill every man, woman, and child in the, in the city. Uh, it's going to be very ugly. They're just about to succeed. And then we meet the wise woman in chapter, uh, verse 16. Verse 16 says, there is a wise woman called from the city. And she says, listen, listen. Tell Joab to come here that I may speak to you. She says, essentially this, she says, hey, Joab, you're strong. You got the soldiers. You could come in and do this, but, but you don't need to do this. People historically have come to this town for counsel. I mean, look at verse 18. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. So this town of Abel is called a mother in Abel. And this wise woman is the mother of the city. Do you know what Joab's name means? Joab is talking with her. Do you know what his name means? Yahweh is father. Fascinating, isn't it? Here you have the the city that's called mother, and you have the mother of the city, and Joab, whose name means Yahweh is father, they're having an interaction, and her wisdom evidently befuddles Joab because it's, oh, I I wasn't going to do that. I I had no intention. He's flustered, and and he kind of tries to get out of what's going on. The woman says to him in verse 22, then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom... (laughs) And they cut off the head of Sheba and threw it out to Joab. Does that remind you of a Monty Python movie? (laughs) He just put his head in a catapult and here he comes. And it's over. When that happens, now we have the second trumpet. Verse 22, now Joab blows a trumpet and everyone goes home. Joab returns to Jerusalem to the king. Which brings us to our third character, the withering king. Now, there are some verses in this passage that you might be tempted to skip over as you have your daily devotions. If your Bible's open, just look at them. I don't want you actually to try to read them. But they're verses uh, 23 and 24 and 25. Those verses give kind of a state of the union report. Okay, the skirmish is over. Here's what's going on. Joab is the commander of the army. Benaniah is the commander. Adoram is in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat is the recorder. Shiva is the secretary. Again, not the kind of verses that you're going to memorize in Sunday school. But it's a report. Here's what's going on down in the southern kingdom of Judah at this point. But a careful reader of 2 Samuel would notice something. Notice that something has been left out. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8, before the sin of Bathsheba, before all this carnage, 
We have a similar report with some of the same names, but that report in chapter 8 begins with these words. Look at them. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That is no longer true. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 20, this is no longer true. Look at verse 24. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Wow. David has moved from ruling over all Israel and promoting justice and equity for all the people. Now he has a withering kingdom with conscripted slave labor, the very atrocity from which they were delivered when they got there in the first place, out of Egypt. His kingdom is withering. David is withering. In the next chapter that we'll see next week, there's going to be another war with the Philistines, and we read the phrase, David grew weary. And we're going to read that his men actually asked him not to go into battle. You're too old now. David does not go into his concubines. He's too old. His kingdom is withering. Okay, let's ask briefly, what does it all mean? We've had our Bible study. We've looked at these three characters, the worthless man, the wise woman, and the withering king. What does it all mean? Why is this passage in your Bible? What do you think God wants you to take from this passage in 2023? Well, at one level, we see the, the long shadow of sin, the, the, the U-turn of sin, the boomerang of sin. Yet again, David sins with Bathsheba. He confesses his sin. His relationship with Yahweh is restored but in another sense, nothing is the same. The consequences, the boomerang, sin has consequences. Grace does not swallow up the residual effects of our foolish choices. If you drink a fifth of vodka every day for 20 years and then come to know Christ, you still have a shot liver. David was forgiven, restored, but his kingdom is never the same. And now his kingdom is withering. Numbers 20, 32, 23, Moses says, Be sure your sins will find you out. I heard a sermon last week on Psalm 7, and, and a, a couple of verses jumped out at me, and I thought I'd share them with you. Just, just watch how the, the Psalm of David, by the way, Watch how the, the metaphor is teased out. It goes like this. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. You see it? He, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he himself has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. 
Now, my guess is David wrote that when he was young, and now he's living it as he is old. So David's kingdom is withering. Without ruining our day, let me ask you, do you you realize that your kingdom will wither if Christ doesn't come back? Have you ever thought about that? Most of life has an expiration date. Someday your kingdom, large or small, is going to wither and, sorry, you are going to wither. Your hair will lose its shine. Someone will take your desk at work, if anybody still works at work by then. (laughs) Your kids will move out. Your body will fail you. Your knees will hurt. Your friends will start to mumble, which means you should go to Costco and buy some hearing aids. You will ride your last wave. You will hit your last tennis ball. You will turn in your keys and stop driving. If you live long enough, your your wardrobe will consist of a couple of pair of pajamas. Our friends die on us. Our, our spouse dies. I had an interesting experience yesterday. I, I, was, I walk for exercise. I walk about five miles a day, with, usually with my wife, but yesterday I was alone. And I, a little loop that we do goes through Hope Ranch, and there was an estate sale. I thought, hey, why not? I don't have any money. I can't, I can't waste any money. But, but I, I just thought, I'll go look at what's in there. And it was so intriguing, this house, which, it, you know, probably, you know, an inexpensive house for Five or six million, something like that. But all the stuff was in there with little pieces of tape, and $25, $10, $400. And I thought, all the things that I cherish, somebody someday is going to put a little piece of tape on, 25 bucks. Oh, you only want to give five bucks? Yeah, take it. We didn't want it anyway. Our kingdom will wither, our friends will die. I'm aware, never met him, I'm aware of a pastor up in Atascadero, Presbyterian Church of Atascadero. He served there about 30 years and retired, had a party. His, his kingdom was withering. That night, Sunday night, went for a walk, got run over by a drunk driver and killed. His kingdom withered fast. pretty negative for me to come here on Sunday morning and say this. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. We have been blessed, and I, for one, love blessing. (laughs) Anybody here say amen to that? (laughs) Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, he says that we are to trust in God. I love this verse. Who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. We don't worship a God who's a cosmic killjoy. I love blessings, and God has been so good to me and to you. We have food and medicine and gasoline and opportunity to travel, and when it gets cold in the winter, we can turn the heater on. We live beyond the the wildest imagination of most kings and queens in the Middle Ages. And we don't even worry about air conditioner here. We just turn the fog on and then complain about it. But... These things will eventually fail us. Everything has an expiration date. But friends, we are looking for a better country. 
a better city, one without walls. We are looking for something better than Goleta, better than Santa Barbara. I have one point that I want to make this morning, just one. Wait. Let us be people who know how to wait. What if David had waited and not sinned with Bathsheba? Wait. The message of the writer of Samuel and Kings and virtually all of the, the Bible is wait. We are waiting. Waiting is the antidote to, on the one hand, unrestrained indulgence, and on the other hand, the resignation of despair. You know, Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Or Job's wife who says, curse God and die. In 2 Samuel, God makes an eternal covenant with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he says, I will establish my kingdom with you and it will last, how long? Forever. How long did it last? 400 years. After the Babylonian captivity, there is no king in Israel. Wait. And so, along comes this guy named Jesus, and he starts doing some interesting things. He teaches, and then he heals, and the people say, wow, could this be the son of David? He comes into Jerusalem in the following, final week of his life. They don't know that, and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. He's here. He's back. We don't have to wait anymore. And by Friday, he gets killed. I guess we got to wait. A couple of days later, he, he's raised from the dead. Ah, we don't have to wait. Forty days later, he, Lord, is it this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Nope. Goes up into heaven. Oh, we have to wait. Ten days later, he comes back in the person of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we don't have to wait. And by the way, when the Holy Spirit comes, everything is perfect for God's people all the time. Right? <laughs> no, Stephen is martyred. The church is persecuted. Christians get cancer. We're still waiting. We're still waiting for David, for the coming one. Jesus promised us that tribulation would be ours until he comes again. Main point this morning, wait. Let your joy be fueled with your willingness to wait for the great things that God has for you. We live in a fallen world, a Genesis 3 world. We do not get everything now. We will suffer. We will shed tears. We will endure anxiety and sleeplessness. We are waiting and if God gives you a good wife or a good husband or a good job or a house in Goleta or Santa Barbara, praise him, thank him, but realize you do not yet live in the fully realized kingdom of God. The greater David is coming. Wait. Wait for him. When we wait, we become not grumpy old people, but faithful, expectant, grateful, joy-filled children of God. And do you know how the Bible ends? Chapter 22 
of Revelation. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Do you know him? Are you waiting for him? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we say thank you, Lord. We are waiting for you. Amen.